Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And unfortunately, our third host, Matt Sanderson, is still unable to join us. At the time of recording, he's still in hospital. Hopefully by the time this episode goes out, he's well on the road to recovery. In the meantime, we are joined by a guest host, Keeper Murph. Welcome, Murph. Hello, gentlemen. How are y'all? Very good, thanks. All the better for having you on the podcast, Murph. Oh, you're far too kind. No, anytime. <laughs> I'm glad to help out. Now, listeners may know you from your role on the award-winning podcast, Miskatonic University. That's right. Yeah, we're creeping up on a decade now, guys. Really? Wow. Yeah, because yeah. you started before us, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I remember. yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. You were going through the call of cthulhu rules and everything and i was listening to your show and i thought you know (laughs) maybe we should do a show too why not (laughs) i don't know if that's a good thing to admit or not (laughs) no it's totally understand what i'm glad it happened you know because we wouldn't have had good friends if we hadn't started our crappy show way back (laughs) in the day no you guys were definitely an inspiration for us so uh, that's great so it's great to have you on it's glad to be on. It's glad to be back. I was on once before. Yes. Well, more than once, because we've also got our live oh, recordings right. at Necronomicon as well. That's right. Yeah, I forgot. So I'll put all that in the show notes as well. Before we get into the main topic, however, what news is there? Well, I understand that a weekend with good friends, it's hard to find the right way to say this, is going to be great. Stroke was great. Because we're recording before it, but it's going out after it. So how was it, Scott? Well, thanks to the wonders of audio editing, I am coming to you now from the future. The convention is over, and I would like to say thank you to some people. First of all, thank you to the convention organisers, Benzer, Chris and Martin, who did so much work ahead of time to make all this happen. The automation systems they set up, the planning, just everything that they did made the actual weekend go, well, smoothly, faultlessly. And I cannot thank them enough for all the incredible work that they put in there. And thank you also to all the convention staff who helped out organising everything over the weekend itself, answering tickets, just corralling players, making sure everyone knew what they were doing. So thank you to Al, Dave the Kraken, Jack, John, Jonesy, Max, Mike Diamond, Nikki, and Rena. And if I've forgotten anyone, I do really apologise. We had over 130 games across at least 50 different systems, with a few hundred players. I genuinely lost track of how many people there were. So thank you to everyone who joined us, especially those who took the time to run games. And personally, I would like to thank everyone I played with over the weekend. I met a bunch of new players. I played with some folks that I've played with before and who I really enjoyed reconnecting with. and. This convention is just an ongoing delight to me in that respect. I've met so many great gamers through it and had some fantastic games. So thank you to each and every one of you. I'm not sure 
when the next weekend with good friends will be happening. The organizers, I believe, are talking about another one, but I don't think there's any discussion of a date yet. But when there is some news, we'll share it here. And now on to our main topic, mind control in role-playing games. We need like a like a 50s kind of <laughs> oh, yeah. So mind control in various forms is a staple of genre fiction. This has influenced RPGs such as Call of Cthulhu, D&D, and well, just about everything else. But how do we actually make use of it in our games? Is it something that is reserved for only NPCs? And how can we make it fun? First of all, what do we actually mean by mind control? Yeah, certainly when preparing for this and thinking over the various aspects of mind control, it means a lot of different things. It really does. Or a lot of degrees of mind control as well. So we're going to dig into those. I guess the question is where to begin? I think going through a few different examples of the most prevalent types of mind control, both in genre fiction and specifically in RPGs, and the way that they manifest in the games might help us pin down our terms a bit better. So the obvious examples are things like, say, the mental suggestion or dominate spells in Call of Cthulhu, charm person, charm monster in D&D, stuff like that. These spells that allow you to take control of another character. But there are other related things as well. Perhaps one of the more obvious ones is possession by other entities, and let's face it, that's all through Lovecraft. In the pulps, a classic is drugs that sap the will. In the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, for example, there is a domination serum that has been developed by the serpent people, which will suppress the will of a human and make them more susceptible to control by their ophidian overlords. There's the classic brainwashing techniques, there's perhaps even surgical techniques, and of course, there is the classic of hypnosis, which may not work that way in real life, but in the pulps, yeah, is definitely a form of mind control. For the purposes of this discussion, we're going to think of mind control as really anything that messes with the volition, the memories, the perceptions of a sapient being. What do you think of when you think of mind control, Murph, in gaming? In gaming, specifically, the first thing that comes to mind to me is the domination trait in World of Darkness. So for mm -hmm. Vampire the Masquerade, you get domination, which allows you to implant certain ideas or at high levels to completely take over control of another person or player character or an NPC. Yeah, yeah. That's already quite an interesting example because, like you say, there's degrees built into the spell there's there. There's a scale. Yeah. Exactly. So that whole thing about planting suggestions, that's very much the subtle end of the scale. But all the way mm -hmm. up to, here's a set of instructions, you will do exactly what I say. Yeah, which I tend to shy away from as a GM just because of the lack of agency you, you mm -hmm. give to the players. You're ripping player agency out of the game at that stage, which I tend to shy away from in general. Yeah, because I think when it's NPCs, knock yourself out. Yeah. You can use magic on them, use maybe like if it's your game, particularly maybe in Pop Cthulhu, you can use hypnosis to a, a similar effect. 
and actually control that NPC because that NPC is just a pawn in the game. The, the GM has got an infinite number of NPCs they can use, whereas a player, right. you've got one pawn in the game, your character. And I think a lot of players, I was thinking about this, you know, I've certainly felt this and I've certainly seen it in players. They've got their character, they're presented with a situation and they're not sure what to do. They're not sure how to portray their character. They're not sure what their character should do and they're not sure how to act. It's especially prevalent with new role players. Definitely. And at a convention setting as well, where you have these guys who are kids a yeah. lot of times who come in and they don't really, they aren't familiar with not just the system, but the hobby in general. And so you have to kind of handhold them through. But what I think you're referring to is like what in Call of Cthulhu we typically do is like make an idea roll, you know, <laughs> like, like you want to force them into a direction without stripping away their agency. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sort of talking about like an example where I'm presented with a choice in the game of should I go to the creepy old house or should I go to the library because I'm not sure where the game is going. But it's more just a, a sense of I'm not sure how my character would act here. I'm, I'm not having trouble getting into my character to know how to portray them. That's just playing your character. But if you're then told, actually, you're possessed, so you're not going to play your character how you normally would. You've got to play them as someone else. That's like another level on top, and it's now like, right. oh, Jesus Christ. Well, I wasn't even sure how to play it to start with. Now I've got to play it like it's under somebody else's control. What? I've been given a character in a game, and it says, you're possessed by the Shan. And it tells me about the character, but it doesn't tell me what the Shan want. And I'm like, well... I think that's the extreme, really, is, is like, I'm totally possessed by something else. What on earth do I do with that? Or even further than that is that your personality is completely supplanted by something else. Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. So your character sheet is no longer valid. That's the far ass end of mind control that probably should only happen to an NPC. Or if it does happen to a player character, it has to be in a very specific format so that it still feels like the player has agency, even though they may not. In my experience doing that tends to come down to a long con you're subtly screwing with the character in a, a lot of cases i'll play several games with the character and them thinking that they are completely in control and then have another game where they come back and then they realize that like npcs don't match up to faces as they did or that player character doesn't remember meeting them when they think that they did and these little things just start to come out or they have these certain skills that they didn't have previously that they remember having but now they don't or maybe they do now and they didn't before because that's something that would have gone towards helping an objective that the person who was mind controlling them in air quotes wanted you have this situation where you play an entire game with a character who is quote-unquote mind controlled and unaware of the fact that they are different. And then you play another game where that player is now slowly becoming aware of the fact that something's not right. So you're talking about almost like fake memories there. Right. Because if you think about it, if we come down to like the nitty gritty of what mind control is, if you imagine like, okay, I'm mind controlled into doing things I don't want to do. You've lost the agency. You have no real control over that character. And as a character itself in my head at least they aren't conscious of that they've got this own fiction going on in their mind as to what's happening to them 
Yeah. And so you can play with that because memory is this tenuous thing that, you know, your brain will make up and fill gaps as much as it can in order to make things happen in, in a fluid way. And so if you do that at the game table, the easiest way I've found at least is just to play it out long and just make little things weird or, or come up strange for the character. And then eventually they'll catch on. And when they do catch on, you can you can really like hammer it home. So that character you're talking about then, that investigator, to the player, have they been playing that character of its own volition without yeah. any mind control? And then they're not aware they've been mind controlled, right. but you're feeding them perhaps fake information? What you're doing is you're retroactively changing their own memories at the game table. So you've gone through an entire session or two sessions or however many it's lasted, right? Where they remember certain events happening as a player at the table. And then in the future, you go through and you say, no, that's not what happened. You subtly start changing things left and right but you've got to do it very slowly or they'll catch on really quick. So you want to go in and say, no, that's not Bill Smithers, the NPC. That looks like somebody else. That's not who you remember Bill Smithers being, you know, just to confuse mm -hmm. them slightly. While mm -hmm. the other players, oh, no, that's, that's definitely Bill Smithers. You know, it creates this little bit of conflict at the table, but at the same time, it's messing with that one character. And Honestly, that's what we love doing as GMs in general. <laughs> that feels a little like the use of delusions then as a yeah. result of insanity. Yeah, yeah. Or a similar, similar kind of effect. Yeah, yeah, very similar. I would have thought there's a lot of crossover between the way that we use the the sanity mechanic in Call of Cthulhu and things like delusions and bouts of madness and the forms of mind control, particularly on player characters, because fundamentally both of them are all about agency. Yeah, yeah. And I think with bouts of madness, I didn't really want it such that during a bout of madness, you've got to play your character out of character, if you see what I mean. Not mm. you're playing your character, but not as they are. So that's why a bout of madness, there's two forms of it. So there's a short version, which lasts for a handful of rounds. Because I think it's okay if you're told you've got to play it differently and here's how to play it, but it's only for a finite number of rounds. Right. And then I get my agency back. So maybe for five rounds, I'm just fighting everybody I see, or I'm trying to dig a hole in the ground and bury myself, or whatever it is, you know? If it lasts longer, then it's a longer bout of madness, and you just cut to the end of it, and you say, okay, well, the next time you see Paul, he's like, you know, stoned out of his head in a bar somewhere, and uh, it's not an expectation of having to play that out. Yeah. In some systems in... I think it's powered by the apocalypse does this where when this happens to a player at the table, the GM says, okay, I'm going to give you an objective. Like they slide them a paper, like a piece mm. of paper with a small objective on it. This is what you have to get done. If you get it done, you're going to get a, like a small bonus. Usually it's like they get advantage on a roll. Yeah. If you don't get it done, you're going to get a disadvantage on a roll. And the scale here is what's important. So in Powered by the Apocalypse, you're giving them a very finite task objective that's very small. It doesn't take over their entire being. It's like the very low end of domination if we're talking about Vampire the Masquerade or something like that. It's just that one thing. So the player doesn't lose agency at all. They just have this extra objective that they can do in character or i have to steal this thing they can do it however they want and if they do it then they're going to get to bank like a 
advantage on a role later on in the future. And if they don't do it, then they get this negative impact, which is whenever the GM wants, they get to impose a disadvantage on a role in the future, which is an interesting way of doing it as well. But I think that's good because it, it doesn't take away their agency. It's, it's like, I'm giving you the choice here. You, yeah. can, you can be possessed and do this thing, or you can resist it and not do it, but you'll get a penalty. Exactly. And it lets them do it in character, mm. which helps a lot whenever you have guys who are really into that kind of that end of it if you have players that really get into characters they can kind of figure out how to do that how their character would do whatever that objective is Hmm. in monster hearts for example powered by the apocalypse game it's somewhere between a, a social skill and mind control but it's not even mind control but you can for example if a character has got a string on your character it's not even just the the mc the gm it's any player character has got a string on your character can basically maneuver them then they can say right okay i want you to do this thing and if you say yes you mark experience if you say no nothing bad happens so it's just purely carrot and not stick right but i'd say that's a bit different than mind control that i'd say is much closer to a social skill role it's more like social pressure isn't it that's right it's like using something like persuade in call of cthulhu where it's down to bonus or penalty dice as carrots and sticks whether you go ahead with what the the social skill role has conveyed but it's certainly be a way that you could apply mind control i think mm. what you're talking about isn't but you could use it as a form of mind control in the game, as mechanics for the game. Right, and we're talking scale here now on mind control. Yeah. And at the far bottom end of the scale for mind control, the only difference between implanting an objective like we described there and a persuade is that a persuade role implies that there's some social interaction happening. Yeah. Whereas an implanted objective, there is no social interaction. That character is just going to want to do that. So an kind of equivalent of this in Call of Cthulhu, say, would be I cast Dominate on you. Right. But instead of me making you shoot your fellow player character or something, you're given either you shoot them or you take 1d6 hit points of damage yourself just from sort of, you know, trauma or something. Or you take a sand damage or something. Yeah, something like that. Because it's all in the head. But then it's up to you. Right. And then you, you don't take away the agency, which is the most important part at the table. Because if you, you know, as a GM, you have to, oh, well, now you're going to have to kill this guy. Like, well, he's not playing that character anymore. And that's no longer fun for that player. It depends. I think this is something that you need to judge according to your play group and what individuals find fun. Because I can think of examples at the table where characters have been controlled or possessed, where Certainly, I've given the option to the players. I mean, for example, I'm running the two-headed serpent for how we roll at the moment. And one of the player characters there has basically, I guess, been possessed. Well, you could describe it as that. And every time she has a bout of madness, this other personality comes in. And so I just basically gave the player the option that this is the other personality, this is the the other entity that's inside your head, this sort of ancient inhuman thing. Every time you have a bat of badness, it takes over for a short period of time. I gave her the details of it, and she absolutely loves playing that other character whenever it comes up. I don't think you as the GM have to backpedal that or downplay it. You just have to agree what works for your group, for your players. 
And who's deciding what that other character is that is taking her over during the Bout of Madness? Well, we've got a, a single established character that does that. So I've given her all the details of that character that takes over from her normal one. Even in that situation there, Scott, you're still allowing her the agency of playing the, oh, absolutely. the possession. Yeah. And you're not taking that away from her and just forcing her to do something that she has no control over her play doing, which, you know, we've all been in that situation as players before, and it's never fun. Well, it's rarely fun. I don't know. I'd argue with that, both as a player and a GM. I think it's interesting to have those moments where you have a character that is compelled to do something they wouldn't normally do, whether that's through magic, through they've been conned into a social skill role, whatever. But as you say, it's down to the player to interpret how that happens. That to me then becomes at its best an exercise in creativity. As long as you're not just having your character's actions described to you and you're a passive observer, then I think being told, okay, yeah, you've had a suggestion implanted in your head that you're going to go off and try to steal the ruby from the museum, then as a player, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But I think you are very used to GMing, Scott, and this feels a little bit like GMing here, whereby you're swapping characters as you do when you play a GM or a keeper. I think for some players, they'd find that A, very challenging to do, and B, very perhaps stressful or objectionable. Disruptive as well. Well, actually, actually disturbing to themselves, I think, because they're having to put themselves in a role where they're playing against the group. Now, Scott, I mean, I know I've played with you. You're Without any fucking mind control, you're quite happy playing against the group. Oh, yes. A lot of people aren't. In all seriousness, a lot of people aren't. It's very much, we're a party and I've got to play to help the party. And if you give them something and sort of say, it's up to you what you do, but it's got to be against the party because you're mind controlled by this other character. I think that can be very difficult for some people. Also, it's it's fair to mention that a lot of people get into character, like hardcore get into mm. character in their own headspace. And so for yeah. them to have to switch out of character into another character that they don't really know as well as whatever they've been contemplating on for you know however long they've been playing the other character is something that some people just can't do easily. I think we're talking about two very different things there. I think we're conflating possession and mind control, like domination and so on. So hmm. where you've got someone who is acting under compulsion has been given you know, a task to do or suddenly finds themselves compelled to do something strange, then they're still playing their character. Their character's personality hasn't changed or anything like that. There is just something that they are being compelled to do. That is mind control, but it's not saying, right, you're playing a completely different character. Yeah. If they're being possessed and you do what I was talking about a moment ago, sort of say, right, here's this different personality, you're being possessed here, play this, then those are two very different things. What I was trying to explain at the very beginning is that you cannot have them do that at all. Instead, you can you can have the player character in their head. They play just as they normally would, but then you mm. change the things after the fact to reflect that, okay, they weren't doing things as they thought they were. In fact, there was this other person who had possessed them, so to speak, would be the easy way of doing it, that had done these things that are different from what the player thinks that they had done. But the things that they had done was the what had actually played at the table. And so it's different in that guy's head. The other players typically have to be in on it to some level so that they know that 
okay, no, we did go see Paul, the NPC the other day, but this other thing happened, not this thing, you know, like thing a, that the inflicted player thinks happened was actually a fantasy that was invented by something else. Even though they, the player themselves has the memory of it. The rest of the people at the table have agreed outside of the game that no, that's not what happened. And if you can do that without having that one player know, then you can have a really interesting play for that at the table for that moment. So are you talking about like taking the other players to one side and saying, okay, well, you know when you did all did this thing? Yeah, between sessions. Right. Okay, now I'm with you. Yeah, that's very effective. Yeah. You can't do it at the table like immediately. Yeah. You just play through the session like you normally would. But then you come through and you, after the session's over, you get with the people and you're like, hey, look, this thing that you said happened, that happened. However, it was with this person instead of this person. Or you didn't actually go there then, you went here then. Mm. You know, and just change things subtly so that their memories are different from what that one player's memory is. Because I, I think this is yeah. a, an interesting aspect. Because when I Googled, just because I was thinking, where does mind control appear in fiction? So I Googled films that are about mind control. And very few of them, I would say, are actually about mind control. So the ones that jumped out at me are The Matrix, Total Recall, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, The Born Identity. These are all films to me that are about either false memory or learning that the world isn't how you thought it was. Right, skewed perception almost. Yeah. The Born Identity might be the closest to actual mind control as we're thinking of it, just because it was false memory implanted kind of thing but even then it's it's shaky but there are definitely others like say the manchurian candidate is probably the most famous example where yeah. it is very much about it's a very common trope throughout pulp fiction and as you mentioned it's baked into a lot of spells and rpgs yeah it's not like it's something that doesn't happen so the other thing that i had thought about doing i haven't done this it's an idea that i came up the other day when i was thinking about this show is what if everybody at the table was mind controlled like at the same time, like they, hmm. they weren't aware of it. And so you play a scenario as normal. And then the next time you come through and you play the same scenario, but something is markedly different. It starts off exactly the same, but at some point it shifts and the entire thing is a different thing. And then you just rehash the same scenario. Like you could even tack on the ass end of a different scenario onto the first scenario. And so when they get to the same spot, it just turns into a completely different game. And then you could just do the same thing. It starts the same thing, same scenario from scenario one, but now instead of two, it's three. Instead of three, it's you could just keep piling on the crazy there because it's the beginning is always the same and you they'll kind of catch on, I would imagine. It might be too hard. It may be ridiculous to even contemplate. But what you're doing is you're messing with their memory. And it doesn't even have to be a smooth transition between them because you're messing with memory. And it doesn't need to be like, oh, and then they flow easily into this other thing. It can be a hard, abrupt, like, okay, we're going to go open the door to Jackson Elias's hotel room here. And then you're in the sands of fucking Egypt. So are you suggesting they're playing through the same event again and again with different yeah. memories or this is mind control from an external force? It's external force. So they're, and they're all in, involved so that they would have the same beginning memory, but then the end would always be different. It would always come up something shifted. And the idea in my head, at least, is that it would kind of show that there's something else out there that's kind of reworking 
Hmm. their minds like in real time, like the scenarios are just their memories being plucked out and moved. And they're trying to work through that. You could really go strange on it and like take some uh, references from something like Southern reach trilogy or something like that, where you really bring in some really weird aspects of nature and environment into the, into the later iterations of the same thing so that things don't always ratchet up. You know, you could pull in like, I don't know, like, some weird William Burroughs-esque type shit, talking typewriters and and whatnot, Mm. just to make it strange. And as it goes on further and further to impound the fact that, okay, this is not right. Something is obviously not right anymore. Going back to the version of it you were talking about before, though, where it's just one player in a group, if I were taking the same approach as you of having one player character with different perceptions of what's going on than everyone else, I'd probably handle it slightly differently Again, it depends entirely who I'm playing with. The people I play with tend to be more experienced role players, so maybe this just works better with them. But I'd take the approach of just being open at the table and and sort of say, you know, describing what this one person sees and just turn around to the other players in front of them and just sort of say, yeah, right, now this is what you see. And create that dramatic irony. And I know most of the people I play with will run with that and have fun with it, actually lean into the dramatic irony. I totally agree with you with a caveat. The caveat is that if you're playing a short game, like we typically do where we're running games at a convention or online for whatever in the in the sessions may not be very long and you have good role players that are able to do that. But it's really cool to do it at a table where you're playing the long con. And so you can Mm -hmm. reference things from three games ago and then change it so that everyone at the table has agreed that something else has happened. And you're really just playing with one guy's memories. You're really just jacking with that one person at the table. And I bring it up that way because it's fun to do. It's fun to mess with people at the table. But it's even funner to mess with people at the table when there's time in between, because then they begin to question their own sanity. (laughs) (laughs) Like, did we do that? You know, I don't remember going, but maybe we did. It was like four weeks ago. Maybe we did it and I don't remember. You know, and it's nice just to see, just to manipulate somebody enough, you know, in such a small minor way at the table, just to watch them like scratch their own head. Cause then you're like, yeah, see, now I've got you. Now I've got you and I can just start piling it on. You see, I'm not sure this would work on me, Murph, because I have enough trouble remembering what happened last week anyway. <laughs> you could tell me and it wouldn't make any difference. That's copious notes. That's what that is. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it does make it for a fun. If you can pull it off at one point or another, um, I've done it a few times and it, it always comes up for a, for an interesting game, uh, especially when the, when the aha moment comes a few sessions down the road. And they're like, what the fuck is happening here? I don't understand, you know? <laughs> One thing that has come to my mind that is sometimes a problem, not for the player here, but for the keeper now, is if you're going full out mind control, as in my protagonist is going to possess your investigator right. and I want you to play them, well, haven't I got to tell you everything about my protagonist and their agendas for you to be able to portray them? Absolutely, yeah. And how do you keep the player from cheating? I mean, like, how do you make them not slightly undermine your objective? Mm. And can you use that? Can the keeper use that to your own advantage? Like knowing that they might do something like that. And is it built in already that 
that conflict of wills, not just between the character and the possessed, but the the player as being possessed. Yeah, I mean, it's how you handle that, I think. I've had that kind of situation come up in games, but I don't want to give too many details because it's a bit of a spoiler, but there's a scenario I wrote a while back where it's quite likely that one or more player characters during the course of it will be replaced by alien entities that have access to their memories but don't have the same agendas. Right. I've run that, oh God, over a dozen times, and that aspect has come up. Most of the time, I've given the players, and this is people at conventions, this is online, this is friends, strangers, I've given players a bit of paper that sort of says, right, this is the alien entity that's replaced you, this is their agenda and so on, run with this. And I've never had anyone have any problems with that, not once. Luck? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you're telling them straight up at the beginning that, hey, you are going to be a possessed character. No, no. You're not doing that at the beginning? No, not not at the start of the game. This is something that happens partway through. I think it is different, though, whenever you're doing it with a group that have been playing the same characters mm. in and out for a number of sessions. Like at a con game or something like that or an online game like we do a lot of, I think you can pull that off without a problem. But if we're talking like a long-running campaign where you throw it in there, you're going to have some some pushback, whether they're on board for it or not. You know, like a lot of times they'll be fine with it. But there's a lot of people out there who will be upset if you jack with their character. It's not as much of a thing in, mm. in Call of Cthulhu because we're notoriously killy. You know, we'll, we'll murder <laughs> characters left and right, whether through insanity or, or just straight-up violence. But in other systems, especially, you know, like D&D or things like that, where people get really attached to their characters. And so doing so can really rub a guy the wrong way if you don't do it the right way. I guess what I'm talking about is that if it is your, it's not just like a bunch of different entities that are possessing and they've got a single agenda. It's that as if you've got like a key protagonist antagonist, I should say, that's possessing one of the player characters. Depending on how that scenario is structured, that's perhaps a big information dump for the player right. to take on and a big responsibility for the player then to portray appropriately. Yeah, you're putting a lot of faith in one guy. Yeah, yeah. There are ways around that. I had almost exactly that situation come up in a game I ran for Ain't Slayed Nobody last week. I don't know when it's going to come out, but basically the antagonist in there through a magical accident, which I hadn't anticipated, ended up swapping minds with one of the player characters. So what I basically just said to the player, right, okay, you're in this body now, we'll deal with that and so on. And so I just carried on playing the antagonist in this other character's body and just left it up to the players to react accordingly. And again, everyone did. There was the initial thing where, oh, hang on, this character's acting a bit weird. And then it came out in character, but again, no one had any problems with that. I ran a scenario in person a long time ago where the same thing happened. But what I did instead is because they, the mind swapped, what I did was I cut the character sheets in half. So their, their, <laughs> their body and, and all of their stats, at the, their attributes at the top, they kept, we swapped. Their skills they kept. And I said, okay, you're in different bodies, but you're the same consciousness. So you still have your skills that you've learned. But your body is this other body now, 
and you look like this other person now hmm. and you act like this other person now, you can't do it really online anymore. You got to do something like that in person. But another game that I just realized that did something similar was Dennis Detwiller's Since It's Light of Hand Man, where at the very beginning, you roll up normal characters, uh, in this case, six ed COC characters, and then immediately you lose the bodies of those characters because you're murdered and, and your consciousness is thrown into the dreamlands, hmm. uh, where you occupy a husk of a body that's already there. And so that's something similar, but it's not really mind control. Possession still. Yeah, it's still possession, one way or the other. And the same thing happens where you end up taking a lot of your mind skills with you and your power rating and stuff like that with you when you swap bodies, but you're stuck with whatever the physical attributes of that body was that you're occupying. Yeah, I think, weirdly, swapping bodies isn't really a problem when you're a player, is it? Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have all that detailed out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in your example, Scott, I didn't quite get it so were you as keeper playing the investigator's body but with an npc exactly and then the player carried on right. playing their investigator's consciousness just in a different body oh yeah totally that's straightforward enough i think yeah yeah, yeah. how about hypnosis yeah that's another one that's that's interesting i've had trouble with it in the past as well but <laughs> You can never be sure. In Call of Cthulhu, I, I mean, I just checked the text before we recorded. In uh, Call of Cthulhu rules, it's an optional skill, but it's it's more akin to hypnosis in the real world in that it can be helped as a, as a therapy or, you know, to help people in various ways. In Pulp Cthulhu, it ramps it up a bit, but not actually as much as I thought it might. I think, you know, if you wanted to, you could take it further. So you can implant almost Manchurian candidate type thing, but it's only limited to like one action with some kind of trigger. So you can put a post-hypnotic suggestion in. Act like a chicken. Like a chicken? <laughs> what? You've never seen that where a hypnotist tells someone to act like a chicken when they wake up. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very specific reference. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, it's quite So I, I think hypnosis in your games, if we're doing it in a game, then you could call it hypnosis but in the context of the game you can kind of do whatever you want yeah. with it can't you as we see in i guess in some fiction you do things that aren't necessarily uh true to life in it <laughs> what do you think uh <laughs> the other one is and you have it listed on our little document here the technological or surgical approaches to yeah. mind control and immediately what pops the head is something like johnny mnemonic you know the cyberpunk genre where you have implants and somebody yeah. hacks an implant or the whole Ghost in the Shell, the movie, or and the series, really, but the first movie especially, deals with that same aspect where people are being hacked and they're, this other thing, it's this other entity is taking over another person's body, but they're still going about their business as normal, uh, and he's using that as a way to gain information, wealth, or whatever. I think in a situation like that, where you've got characters who are being controlled or replaced or whatever, then that lends itself to perhaps a, a different kind of game. Clearly, if that's happening to NPCs, then it becomes much more about the paranoia of, well, for a start, why are these people acting so strange? But also then once you've determined, assuming you've determined that's what's going on, it's, you know, who is still themselves? Who can I trust? That, I think, becomes really quite a creepy kind of horror game. 
the parallels between what you described there and something like the shadow over Innsmouth is mm-hmm. very similar in that you have that same sort of, instead of it being an external force, it's, you know, your internal biological urges that are forcing you to, to think like the deep ones or whatever. And this entire town has shifted into this mindset of Dagon worship or whatever. And you are slowly doing that as well, but it's an internal process that's making it happen as opposed to an external. So, I mean, that's a little like, I mean, you, you mentioned World of Darkness, Vampire. Yeah. I mean, once you're a vampire, you've got that same kind of internal drive as much as you might not want it. Mm-hmm. And there's that humanity rating to kind of measure right. your shift down the scale, right? Right. Yeah, it's a constant battle, especially in the new version. They've really ramped that up so that it's it's a much more prescient thing that that you're you're always like trying to battle these urges versus feed versus survival versus humanity. It's a really a precarious knife edge that you're trying to balance. Yeah, I suppose that's an important thing that if you're playing vampire, you've pretty much explicitly signed up to engage with that kind of conflict and to engage with the right. the battle for your character's soul i suppose and there's no limit to that in call of cthulhu with the sanity mechanic but i mean if you're going to bring elements of a possession or mind control particularly of player characters into a game then I don't think, again, there's necessarily anything wrong with doing that as long as you get the buy-in of the players. If you sort of explain to them ahead of time, perhaps this is going to be a major theme or or if it's something that's coming up during a long-term campaign, before you actually bring it into a game, have a chat with the players and certainly with the player involved and sort of say, right, I was thinking about this happening. Do you think you could play through it in a way that would satisfy you? What do you think? I just think more important than anything else is that you still allow that player to actually act at the table as opposed to telling that player what his character is doing or their character is doing. I think that's the most important thing. And everything that we've listed are, are basically methods of, of how we can do that at the table without without taking away their ability to actually play and have fun. I think the only place that I would sort of put in where I actually tell your character what to do or something of that nature would be if it's just for one round or just for a handful of rounds that seems okay to me like it's like an involuntary action from failing a sanity roll right okay well you're in the room and now you fail your sanity roll suddenly you realize you've got your gun in your hand right and you don't remember drawing it Hmm. or better yet the gun's gone off and and you don't know whose gun and oh shit there's a gun in your hand you know something like that has happened Or you wake up and there's blood all over the sheets, but you're totally uninjured. Right. You don't know where it came from. And those are fun scenes. You know, when you pull them off, the players get really into it because they aren't aware of what the hell is going on. And it hasn't really taken away their agency. I don't, maybe a little bit, but in a very different way. Because it's happened between scenes, you know, between actions as we would see it. And I guess I'm not getting you to act out something of your own volition. But it doesn't have to be for a single action. The other technique you could use like that would be lost time. A little bit like what you were talking about before, Paul, with the extended bouts of madness. But a little pattern of that, that perhaps Mm. every now and then the player realises their character has done something 
but they mm. have no memory of having done that. That They see the evidence of it, that it is like they wake up with blood on their hands or wake up somewhere they don't remember going to sleep or something like that happens. And they're, they're trying to piece it all together. That way, you're not directly... I mean, you're still taking agency away from the character. You're not taking agency away from the player. Yeah, I've, I've certainly run a short campaign where the characters were investigating one of their own investigators, but they didn't realise it. It's, it's kind of hard to maintain, but for a few sessions, it was kind of fun. And considering where it appears in fiction as well, I was thinking about where we see this in Lovecraft. I would say an outstanding one is Shadow Out of Time yeah. with Peasley, isn't it? Yes. Gets possessed by one of the race of Yith. If that were played as a game, the, the fiction is almost like it's played as a game because yeah. we have the character, we don't really see the story when the character is possessed, as I recall. That's right. It's all yeah. in retrospect. It's all retrospect. So that yeah. could be, you know, you playing your character and you've come back to your senses and last thing you remember was giving a lecture right. and then yeah. you kind of blacked out and now it's three years later let's play the game so there's no loss of agency there for the player right but and that's how lovecraft wrote that story well and then also if you look back to lovecraft with all of the fainting protagonists right so what if you faint a protagonist and, and your character faints and then he wakes up and he's in, or they're in a completely different time and location so they hmm. fainted at home you know in 1922 hmm. and they like uh, stranger out of time they he woke up you know, in Egypt in 1933 or something, you know, mm. totally lost a, a chunk of time and has no concept of what in the hell has been going on. But is this mind control? No, that's possession. They're certainly related in terms of how you present them in the game. Yeah, it could be mind control. Like yeah. Scott said, it's how you present it. Mm. It could be that you've just come back to your senses and the guy has relinquished control over your mind and you're free to fill in the gaps however your mind deems appropriate it's just maybe it's the scale again you know if it's a long possession or a long mind control you can't tell the difference between a possession and a mind control whereas if it's a very short period of time like at a single action is it mind control or is it just a suggestive action like a hypnosis thing you know so maybe it all comes down to scale you were talking earlier Murph, about having a whole group of investigators under some kind of mind control or possession or whatever what if the whole group was possessed by a group of yithians and you give them agendas and you create their characters as such from the get-go but then you're just playing a yithian game you know yeah which is fine it's just a different thing i mean you're not quote-unquote mm. mind control what is that weird detective yeah you're right comic uh where the Yithian comes and possesses the the police detective. God, what is it called? I think it's called Weird Detective, where this Yithian comes in and he possesses the mind or the body of this police detective in New York City in the 40s or something and has all these adventures. And he uses his Yithian extrasensory perceptions to solve murders. Meanwhile, oh, wow. the mind of this human is back in this fucking mm. yith you know in stasis essentially or trying to figure out why in the hell he's like screaming at the madness of these yithians standing around him because he's possessing a yithian body and he doesn't know how to use it mm. but at the same time you're that's transmutation or, or possession you know as opposed to to mind control to turn things around, however, sometimes these mind control, particularly magics or sometimes technology, fall into the hands of player characters and they use them on NPCs. Mm. 
I've often struggled with how to make that interesting because obviously the least interesting form of it, as far as I'm concerned, is, okay, yeah, I've got to dominate spell or whatever, and I tell that guy over there to, I don't know, walk off a cliff or shoot his friend or something like that. And it's, yeah, okay, I mean, it's nice and utilitarian, it's pretty fucking evil, but what can you do to to make that kind of thing more interesting when it, it falls into the hands of player characters. Uh, like you say, it's, it is very much a utility for them. As we said earlier, is it different to using Persuade? I think it is. So basically you're trying to get the NPC to do the thing you want, but the ultimate result, is it different? Yeah, well, I mean, Persuade is, is an implied social interaction. Yeah. Whereas a mind control or a dominate spell, is there is none. I mean, it's a different, if a different means, but the end is kind of similar. I mean, you're never going to get such an extreme reaction, perhaps, with Persuade. But then again, we've covered episodes on cults and so on. Mm. They're not using anything beyond what one might call Persuade. Yeah, but that's a long game. It is, oh, it is, it is. But the, the end result can be quite extreme action. Yeah, you're taking all of that and shrinking it down into an instant as opposed yeah. to yeah. a year or two of deprogramming. The end result, whether you achieve it in a second or a year, right. is that you get that NPC to do something you want. You get them to be your pawn to carry out some action. And that seems very much a utility sort of function. How you make that more interesting is is the question, I guess. Yeah. I think one thing you can do, I mean, again, this depends entirely on the group you play with and the kinds of people and how they engage with the game on an emotional level, whether they see it as problem solving or whether they're getting into the emotions of the game. Presenting it very much in terms of morality, as well as the difference in the time it takes and so on, that there is a really fundamental moral difference between trying to persuade someone to do something and just using compulsion to Forcing make it. them do it, particularly if it's something unpleasant. Whoa, hold on. Is there? I mean, we're talking about like almost gaslighting someone into doing something if we're talking about cultist techniques, which is pretty fucking evil. But you were talking about cultist techniques and that's fine. But I, I was talking about just kind of persuasion yes all right i mean you can talk about the extreme versions of that but if you as a player character wanted to try to get into say the museum after hours and you go up to the security guard and you use your persuade skill for example or your charm skill and bribe them mm. and they let you in then that's a dubious thing morally but you know is perhaps in pursuit of a greater good, a greater good. You, you haven't really done any harm yeah. to the security guard as long as they don't get caught and don't get fired from their job you go up to them and you know, you use a magic spell you plant it in there and they're suddenly they're trapped in their own body unable to resist not knowing why they're doing this going up unlocking the door standing there still just trying to fight against the whole thing panicking more and more perhaps going slightly mad trying to work out what the hell has driven them to this situation that is an absolutely horrific thing to do to someone yeah well, that's because you just described it in a horrific way how would it not be horrific I think what he's describing, when you give it to a player to be able to use against an NPC or another player, then that player should suffer some sort of negative yeah. impact from that. And typically in Call of Cthulhu, the answer to that is they lose sand. They lose sand because we have sand ratings for, for like, okay, you've seen a dead body. Okay, you've witnessed this horrible deed. You've now performed a categorically evil act. There's no way around it. You have taken 
all of the agency away from another living person and force them to do whatever you wanted them to do without it, that should impose a sand hit yeah. on you as opposed to not just the, the target. You should both get it. Yeah. That will keep players from overusing it. Once they do it once, they'll be like, well, we can just dominate that guy and let him open the door for us like we did that other guy, you know. But if they take a sand hit from it, you know, if they've lost 1D3 sand every time they do that or something, you know, that starts to pile up. But I think as well as just the mechanical aspect of that, then presenting it just in terms of the narration that perhaps they go outside of the museum afterwards and they just see the security guards sitting there on the ground sobbing into his hands and shaking that perhaps brings home the ramifications of what it is they've just done or make it a two-way street in the fact that i've dominated paul into doing something that paul didn't want to do but as a result of that paul's messed up a little bit because of it i'm messed up a little bit because of it but paul also now has some aspect of me that he knows intimately that mm. i didn't really give him access to oh yeah there's this transference thing that's happening you know whereas i forced him to do this but now he knows whatever you know something about that character that i'm that way now you've got not only an npc that's been or, or a pc potentially that's been inflicted but you've got a really interesting npc or pc that can use things against the other one which could come to help in the story later on and i guess what we're talking about is perhaps why the spell costs sanity yeah it does cost sanity to cast dominate right that's a rationale for why i guess without a doubt that's why we don't cast a lot of spells in general in call of cthulhu's because most of them are stripping the agency from another player or they're, you know, causing some really fucked up shit to happen. <laughs> the other way you could make it problematic for players to use is almost like the old cliches of the DM interpreting wish spells in D&D, &D, where you're giving an instruction to an NPC who is unwilling to do what it is you're doing. You're perhaps looking for ways of them following the letter of what the player character told them to do, but not the spirit of finding ways of, of fucking with it and, and disrupting the player character's plans. Right, the old genie in the bottle. Write down what you want the character to do in ten words. Yes. Right. You, have, <laughs> you have nine syllables. Go. <laughs> uh, or there was that whole Wishmaker, the, the movie, the crappy oh, movie God, series yes. from the late 90s, <laughs> early aughts. Where that was the whole premise, is that, you know, you would make a wish and then he would twist it and make it something horrible. Hmm. The first film was good and it went downhill sharply yeah. from there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else either of you would like to cover before we wrap up? The only other thing that I wanted to mention is that you can change like an archetype for a character instead of straight out dominating or somebody or mind controlling somebody so with a player at the table you know how we have he's a dilettante or he's a he's a this or he's a that or you can change the integral part of like their their desires and their hopes and their fears as opposed to changing everything else on the sheet they can still be the same character maybe they have to play it a little bit different but you're changing like their motivation for player as opposed to forcing them mm. into doing a certain particular action that would be the only other method of mind control that i could think of i mean mechanics wise in call of Cthulhu, that would be like maybe rewriting a part of their backstory right 
on that second sheet some aspect of those yeah it works easier on in different games in a lot of different games you have like an archetype and then a motivation rating of some sort and you kind of build around those you can just flat out change one of those Hmm. uh, to something Hmm. different sure in call cthulhu you would end up like changing an aspect of their background yeah maybe even changing their skills so you could say okay here's your new skill sheet (laughs) it's the same character but now instead of being a librarian you're a egyptologist Hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe a lot of the same skills are there but now you've got these other skills you didn't know you had before and you don't know why Mm. trying to think of a different way of coming at controlling a player or changing what the player knows without stripping their ability to influence a game or influence their character themselves you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media links we have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our redbubble store if you're enjoying this show please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of jackson elias Thank you for listening. So, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank personally. Starting off with a thanks to Juno Diaz. And then J.F. Boyvin. And thank you very much to Robert B. And thanks to Joe Webb. And thank you to Andy Kalhofer. And thank you to the singular Chan. And finally, thanks to Darren Chandler. Okay, and also thank you to you, Murph, for uh, joining us on this show and uh, helping us out as a guest host. Oh, anytime. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Is there anything you would like to plug and let us know where people can find you? Oh, you can come by the Miskatonic University podcast. We're at mu-podcast.com on Spotify or wherever else you want to find us. Or at mu underscore podcast on Twitter. That's about it. Or come knock in on the underground bunker in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Come knock on the underground bunker in Texas, <laughs> which doesn't exist. Even better. Come by our Discord server. I guess you could do that. Yeah, we'll put links to all those things in the show notes. Well, except for the bunker. The bunker can remain a secret. Yeah, doesn't exist. Wink, wink. <laughs> All right, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias, and it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a toodaloo from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com See, that's the other thing about mind control. (laughs) Just make you go crazy.